So we'll begin, chapter 6, verse 2, we'll begin from under where it says false teachers and true contentment. So let's hear what the Holy Spirit says. Teach and urge these things. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. I want to play a thought experiment this morning. Imagine with me that tomorrow... Christianity is ruled illegal in the UK. Okay, we get a new government or a dictator takes over, whatever it might be, and as of tomorrow morning, nine o'clock, all Christians are to be arrested. And the government get together and say, right, we need a policy. We've decided all Christians are going to jail. But of course, we've got to work out who the Christians are. And someone says, well, it's not that easy, Prime Minister. You see, some religions, they have special dress. But Christians don't have a particular way of dressing. Uh, another person says, well, hey, Christians come from all sorts of different cultures. You know, they're not attached to one nation, one people group. So we, we can't catch them that way. And then someone says, no, 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 no. You've got to understand, Christians are people who, who believe and pray to their God. So it's very simple. What we'll do is we'll just ask everybody, do, do you have faith? in God, and do you pray to him? And the Prime Minister or the dictator says, okay, great, let's go out and do that. And then just before they, they, they head off, a bright spark from the treasury pipes up and says, no, no, just a minute, I've been reading that, that New Testament that Christians read. I've been reading those gospel accounts, and we all know that Christianity is all about Christ. Now, I, I've been counting up Jesus' teaching, counting the words, counting the speeches, counting the sermons, what the treasury do children they did counting get there in charge of the money and actually if you want to catch the christians don't worry so much about prayer don't worry so much about faith what you want to do is look at their bank accounts jesus taught more about money than faith and prayer put together so what we want to do to catch these christians is simply find those who are spending their money in line with Christ's teaching rather than what everyone else is doing. Oh, brilliant, says the Prime Minister. That's the plan. Let's go with that. So, so again, imagine. I know everyone earns different salaries and all the rest of it, but, but imagine they rounded up everybody in your office who earns basically the same salary as you. Everyone on your street who roughly earns the same wages. They're not going to ask you any questions. They're simply going to look at your bank accounts, look at your spending 
Uh, they're going to think and examine where you've invested. And they're going to compare it to everybody else. Would you stand out? Would you be arrested? Would you be convicted of being a Christian? Okay, they're not checking to see if you've got a Bible on the shelf. They just want to look at your finances. Would you stand out from those around you? Does your wallet have enough evidence to convict you of being a Christian? C.S. Lewis, uh, in the middle of the 20th century, uh, was, was preaching on this subject. Uh, and he said, if you look down a street... Okay, so you've got a similar people living on the same sort of street. If you look down a street and you can't tell which one is a Christian because of how they're using their money, then we've got serious problems. If you don't stand out from your neighbours because of your spending patterns and your money, then something's gone horribly wrong. Uh, Paul, in this last chapter of, of 1 Timothy, is going to address money. He's going to address it twice, this week and indeed the passage that uh, we're looking at next week. And it's such a big problem that it's even affected the teachers. Now, we've come across these false teachers that we read about in verses 3 to 5 already in the letter. We came across them in chapter 1. They were teaching strange myths, strange understandings of the Old Testament. They were drawing up controversy. They were splitting the church. And we come back to them in verse 3. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ, literally there is the healthy words. The Bible um, is there to make you healthy. Okay, so often we think that, or the world thinks, perhaps you're not a Christian, and you think, well, if I was to live the way that Jesus teaches or the Bible teaches, I'd be going against myself. You know, it's a weird, strange way of life that isn't the real me. Well, no, Jesus' words are sound words. They're health-giving words. The same God who made the world by speaking then came into the world in the person of his son and again spoke. And those two words match up. Jesus' words help us to be the people we were created to be. Again, if you're a Christian, it's so easy to fall into the trap, isn't it, of thinking that, that Jesus' teaching on holiness is it's like the small print on the contract. Okay, you, you've, you've got to go along with it if you want to, you know, the big thing, but it's a bit of a pain. It's the trade-off. Well, if I want salvation, I guess I'll have to obey his commandments because that's kind of how it works. Well, well no, that the, the commandments, his teaching, is also for our blessing. Holiness is a gift, not a chore, a burden. But there are these teachers who are are teaching against what Jesus teaches. Uh, Therefore, in verse 4, we get a pretty unflattering uh, description. They're puffed up, they're proud, they crave controversy. But what I want to focus on today is is their purpose. You see the end of verse 5? They imagine that godliness is a means of gain. These teachers think that godliness, now godliness there is in, you know, inverted commas, it's not real godliness they're preaching, but they think that religion is a way of making money for themselves. Sadly, that's still the case. And many people peddle even Christianity, in inverted commas, for money. Again, I was talking this morning at Sunday school about the the cricket club I used to play in in Derbyshire. Um, The only contact most of those people would have with Christianity other than me uh, was where they'd flick on Sky TV and occasionally find the God channel. And just week after week, I get abuse about what they'd seen on the God channel that week. You know, send in your money, send in your uh, cash, and you'll be blessed. It's frankly embarrassing, but it's still going on. 
Uh, They believe that uh, their status as ministers or their status as elders is meant to lead to their gain. Now, last week we saw that it's right for churches to pay ministers. In verse uh, 17, we read, let the elders who rule be considered worthy of double honour. As Jesus says, the, the labourer deserves his wages. So it's right for a church to be thinking, well, we've got to pay our, our ministers so they can do the work. But it's not right for the minister to be working out how he can make money out of the congregation. See the balance? To put it really bluntly in our context, my job is just to get on with, with the work that I've been given. And it is the job of the church to decide how and how much and whatever to, to pay me. We each just do our own job. But, but the attitude that Paul wants, it is not just for, for false teachers. And this is why we're going to be pretty uh, light on verses 1 to 5. And this morning, I really want to focus on 6 through 10. That there's, a, there's only two things you can do with wealth, says Paul. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. Two things you can do. You can either be content with your wealth or you can crave more. Children, to crave means to want more, to desire more, always want more and more and more. So you can either be content or crave. We see the contentment in verse 6. Godliness with contentment is great gain. And in verses 6 to 8, he'll talk about contentment. And then in verses 9 and 10, he talks about that desire for more, which in verse 10 he calls craving. Uh, G.K. Chesterton, who was a, a Catholic writer in the early 20th century, I said there are two ways to get enough. Okay, we always want more, don't we? There are two ways to get enough. One is to accumulate more and more. The other is to desire less. Well, that's a great little summary of what Paul's saying here. You either want more and more and more, or you just desire less. So let's look at contentment first. This is verses 6 to 8, contentment. What is godly contentment? Verse 6. Godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. How much do you need to be happy? Basically what content means. How much stuff do you need in order to not need to desire more? Well, verse 8 gives the answer. If we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. Now remember, Paul is not one of these false teachers who's writing from his mansion okay, on the Florida Keys. He is a man who's constantly in prison, being beaten up. Uh, he's shipwrecked. He has virtually nothing. He pretty much just has his clothes and food. Okay, so it's not ivory tower theology. And yet the bar is so low, isn't it? Food and clothing and we're happy. Now, let me make a couple of comments on this. Okay, Paul is not saying that is the maximum you're allowed. Okay, if you've got more on food and clothing, you're, you're sinning. Many of us, in fact, I would pretty confidently say all of us in this room have more than just food and clothes. Many of us will own houses or part-owned houses with a bank or whatever. Uh, many of us will have cars, phones, all sorts of things. Paul is not saying it is necessarily wrong to own more than food and clothing. What he's doing is putting the bar, if you like, the minimum bar for contentment. That is all you should need to be content. It also means, therefore, that if you don't have food and clothing, it's okay to want more. Okay? If you are starving and naked, unclothed, lacking shelter, it is not a sin to want food, to want shelter. But still, for most of us, in most of our situations, uh, that bar is pretty low, isn't it? 
I think you could extend it a little bit. Uh, food and clothing, I think it's Paul's way of saying the basics of life. And in different cultures, different societies, that's going to vary a little bit. Uh, you pretty much need to live inside if you're going to live in England. Okay? So some sort of housing uh, is unnecessary. Uh, there might be one or two things you add. But it is still a very low bar. If you earn £23,000 or more, it puts you in the top 1% of world earners. So you constantly hear about the top 1% that you're in the world. But if you earn more than twenty-three grand, that's you. So are you content? Very simple question. If you're a Christian, are you content with your financial situation? So, so much of this is a matter of perspective, isn't it? It's not what we have that makes us content. It's our attitude to what we have. I read just the other day about a, a guy who's in a wheelchair. Not a Christian. It wasn't a Christian book. Just a, another thing I was reading. And someone asked him, how do you feel about your wheelchair? How do you feel about being in your wheelchair? And the guy said, oh, it's just so freeing. And the guy asked the question, he's like, I'm really sorry, but what do you, what do you mean? It look, it's constricting. You, know, you can't run, you can't walk, you can't get in various places. What, why are you saying a wheelchair is freeing? And the guy said, well, because if I wasn't in the wheelchair, I'd be bed-bound. Wouldn't be able to get out of bed. It's just perspective change, isn't it? Food, clothing should be enough, says Paul, says the Holy Spirit, ultimately, for contentment. Uh, why? Well, the motivation is in verse 7, isn't it? For, there's the key word, for. Why is contentment great gain? For we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of the world. Think of the book of Job. Job has all sorts of things taken from him. He's a very rich man, we're told. All sorts of things are taken from him. He says, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will return. It's true, isn't it? Children, have you seen there's a royal baby born this week? Okay, Prince Harry has had a baby. Was the baby born, do you think, with a crown on his head? Or wearing robes like a king? Or jewels or rings on his finger? No, of course not. Okay, he will be one of the richest men in England, I suspect. He will be incredibly well provided for. But even he came into the world naked. And one day when we die, well, we'll be naked again. You see all these ancient graves, don't you? Perhaps the pyramids in Egypt, or Anglo-Saxon burials, the Viking burials in the UK, where in the UK, you know, some of these guys are buried in their ships with cords of gold around them, but they can't take it with them, can they? There's a story about a minister who was doing the funeral for a, a very wealthy lady, and everyone was sort of fascinated about where all her money was going to go. So someone asked the minister, you know, how much did she leave? And the minister said, everything. They always do. Every single thing you have spent money on that is stuff is either going to perish before you or after you. It's a sobering thought that some things last longer than we do. There are things, my, my watch I'm wearing this morning belonged to my grandpa. It's not a very special watch, not a very expensive watch. It means something to me because it was my granddad's. But it has lasted longer than him. And frankly, it'll probably last longer than me. We are such time-bound creatures. We come into the world naked and we will leave the world naked. We must lift our eyes and see eternity and not think this world is it. Uh, in the, after 70, uh, September the 11th, 
and obviously just the devastation wrought on New York. One of the effects was that in big global centres like New York, London, Paris, shopping, spending went through the roof. People spent way more very suddenly. And there's also sociologists speculating, why is this, why is this? And, and fundamentally, it came down to the fact that, that people wanted to live in denial of death. Because they'd suddenly seen that even in a secular, safe Western lifestyle, out of nowhere, their life could be taken from them. Tragically, horrifically. So, so what do they do to deal with it? Buy stuff. Makes you feel alive. More stuff, more safety, more security. It's nonsense, obviously, but it's a human reaction. And yet everything you own is headed to the dump. Francis Schaeffer uh, was a minister who actually began some of the first IPC congregations. And he talks about how as a child in Philadelphia, to get home from school, he'd take a shortcut and, and he'd walk through the city rubbish dump. And he said one day it really struck him as, as he walked through the dump that almost everything people spent their lives working for ended up on that dump. See, on that dump, he saw like, the fruit of millions of people's lives. Sofas, TVs, fridges, bikes, piled up, that at one point had been someone's pride and joy, but ultimately had faded and broken. Uh, He preached on it, he called his sermon Ash Heap Lives, and said, wouldn't it be a tragedy if as Christians, we live our lives primarily, and spending most of our time, focusing on the stuff that's going to end up on a rubbish heap. Do not live an ash heap life. So, uh, two questions. One, how's your heart? Are you content with where you're at? Are you content with what God has given you? In a minute, we'll see the opposite. That is the craving. But can you honestly say you are thankful for where you're at? Do you give God thanks for the provision he has given you? Or are you more seeing the gaps or the comparisons with other people? Are you more seeing where you need to get to in your own mind than where you are now? So secondly, how are you using money? There's really three things you can do with money. Do you know what the three things you can do with money are? Okay, if I, if I take some money out of my pocket. Should have checked I bought money. Luckily, I did bring money. Oh, three things. Hey, <laughs> Lots of it is. What can you do with money? is fantastic look at that i need to talk to you in the week isaac so we can you know you can write my servants okay if i've got a pound i can give it to someone else or give it to to help some cause i can spend it to buy something for me you know i can buy myself some food or i can save it which is what i'm gonna do with this one back in the pocket give spend or save listen to isaac saving is good Okay, saving is commended in the Bible. Proverbs 13, 22, a good man leaves an inheritance for his children's children, for his grandchildren. Okay, so there's nothing wrong with saving in order that your children might inherit. But there are obviously limits to that. Okay, you're not trying to store and store and store and store and store so you can make your children, whatever, millionaires. But saving is not in and of itself a bad thing. Sometimes I think we get the impression as Christians that um, unless you die with a tenor in your bank account, you've not really been godly. Well, I want to say, if you die with literally a tenner in your bank account, and that's because, you know, it's, it's not because something's happened, it's your own choice, you probably haven't been godly. Okay? The idea is to pass on something to your children, to help your children and your children's children. 
but there are dangers, of course, of oversaving, of not trusting uh, the next generation to the Lord, but rather thinking it's only finances that will help them. So again, there are wisdom decisions to be made there. Spending is not always wrong. Okay, as we said, food and clothing are not the maximum you're allowed, rather the, the minimum you need for contentment. So it's not always wrong to spend, but are you being thoughtful about how you are spending? When you cross that line, as I guess all of us have, of just having shelter and food, when you cross that line and start buying things for entertainment, for comfort, for enjoyment, things that are pleasurable but not necessary, th- things that you want but you don't need. So often we talk about needing, you know, I need a new phone. Do you? Do you need a new phone or do you want a new phone? Now, it's okay sometimes to say, I, I want a new phone. Okay, that, that's okay. In some cases, that's, that's fine. You want to go out for a meal rather than cook at home. You don't need to. Let's be careful with our language. So are you thoughtful about where your money is going? Are you just filling up rubbish dumps? I expect there are certain areas for each of us that we are blind. If I look back on my 20s, I, I never thought about food. I wouldn't I just didn't spend much money on clothes, believe it or not. <laughs> it wasn't that into fashion. Uh, I didn't blow money on fast cars or anything like that. I was working for a church, didn't have that much money. But, but one area was just, just never occurred to me I was wasting money. It was on food. Uh, I was, you know, just going out with mates to the pub and eating out or having a pizza and takeaway and spending way more money than I needed to because it's just thoughtless. It wasn't until I was a bit older and suddenly realised you're wasting money. And because I wasn't wasting tens of thousands of pounds, it just didn't occur to me. But what I wasn't doing was stewarding the money I had well. This is not just a command for rich people. It's for all of us. Whatever money we've given, we've got to be careful and thoughtful about how we spend it. I suspect for men, gadgets is a huge thing. Computers, phones, tablets, games, a billion other things. For, 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 many, for many of us, those are the things that we just start to think we need rather than just want. Now, this is not me saying at the front, and it's not my place to say as a minister, um, it's yes to smartphones, but not if they're Apple. Yes to a car, but not if it's an Audi. You know, yes to a holiday, but it's got to be in England, not in France or America. Okay, that, that's not my place. You all have to make wise decisions about those things. But the point is, be thoughtful. And remember that the key is contentment rather than continual gain. Uh, it might be that you need to rethink how you're using your money. Is it for eternal value? Think about the, I don't know, the gifts you give one another or the money you spend, or whatever it might be. Each purchase, is it, is it being done in the light of eternity or are you filling up, ultimately, Leeds City Dump in 2060 when you pass away? I suspect many of us would fail that C.S. Lewis test, that we don't look that different from those around us. But just because we're not the super rich, we kind of think it's okay. We need to be radically different in how we use our money. And that takes us to our second and final uh, section this morning. Verses 9 to 10, we think about the craving. If you're not content, you will crave. Verse 9, those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senses and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some people have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Now, without looking down, let me read those verses to you again. For those who are rich will fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senses and harmful desires 
that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For money is the root of all kinds of evil. It's through this craving that the wealthy have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. That, I think, is how we read the verses, but it's not what they say. These verses are not about rich people, but more likely poor people or middle-of-the-road people. It's not those who are rich who Paul is concerned with here, but those who desire to be rich. It is not the possession of money, but the craving, wanting more and more, that is the problem. Now, of course, it might be that if you are super rich, you also have the craving. But it's not just the rich. It is the desire for money, the craving for money, or verse 10, the love of money and wealth. And that is not just found in those who are wealthy. We typically define the rich as people with more than me. So wherever the line is, it's just further than me. But desire is found in all of us, especially those of us with less than the super wealthy. So you might successfully crave money, and that will lead to a whole parcel and package of sins. Do you see verse 9? Those who desire money, let's say you're successful, you'll fall into temptation. The temptation there might be, well, it might be gluttony. Uh, It might be that you spend your money on things that you just don't need or bad things. It opens up opportunities that weren't available to you when you had less money. Think about a very simple level. Uh, I don't know, 20, 20 years ago, before any of us had computers, 30 years ago, whatever it was, um, there was no opportunity to, to watch inappropriate material online. But now we've grown in wealth, computers have got cheaper, we can spend it. So suddenly a whole load of opportunity has opened up and this whole industry of inappropriate websites. Or verse 10, if you're wealthy, your love of money is successful, you've got loads of money, it's a root, not the root, but a root of all kinds of evils. All sorts of evils come because you've successfully got hold of money. But it's also true if you're poor, verse 9. What might be the temptations if you crave money? Well, it might be that you work every hour that, that God sends and neglect your family because you just want more. You're trying to get more up the scale. I would justify it. I want to give my family a nicer lifestyle, but actually it's just about craving, craving, craving. It's the same problem as the rich person. I don't do my, serve my church, do my duty to church because it's just work, work, work. The craving, even though I'm not rich, has led to a package, a package rather, of sins. Verse 10, we fall into all kinds of evil. What kind of evils can the love of money produce if we don't have money? Well, all sorts. Resentment, jealousy, covetousness, the 10th commandment. And that's why it's so serious. There are two reasons here it's so serious, this issue for Paul. First of all, because where it can take you, both verse 9 and 10 have the same pattern. A warning ends each of them. In verse 9, it can lead to your ruin and destruction. Verse 10, people from this craving have pierced themselves, like they've stabbed themselves and wandered away from the faith. They've left the faith. Ultimately, as Jesus said, you can't serve God and money. Money is like a God. and You have to choose between Jesus and this God. No one ultimately craves money, do they? No one really wants money. Money itself is just, in our case, it's paper, and little bits of basically worthless metal. But what we crave is what money brings us, because what money brings us is the sort of stuff that God only is meant to provide. So money brings some people security. I want more money because then I'll feel safe. If I just owned my house rather than renting it, if I just had a nicer house, then I'd feel secure, and I stop trusting God to give me security. It gives us comfort. Okay, I will be, oh, I'd just be so happy 
if I got a new kitchen. I'd just be so happy if I had a landscape garden. I'd be so happy if I had a nicer car rather than finding our satisfaction in God. And we think money is the way to deliver those blessings rather than God through Christ. So the first danger is we get so into this craving that it makes us wander from serving Christ and wander into destruction, into hell and abandoning the faith. And the other danger, do you see it? It's a subtle one. The other danger is that we don't notice. Verse 9, those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare. Verse 10, they've wandered away from the faith. They don't march away, they wander. Now snares, do you know what snares are? Snares are traps to catch animals. Now if you want to catch, do you know how to catch a monkey? If you want to catch a monkey, do you think you put a big sign saying, monkey trap here, walk in here and I'll catch you? Well, no, of course not. You disguise it, don't you? You put things around it so that the monkey will accidentally walk into the trap. Money is a snare. The love of money is a snare. No one thinks, I'll tell you what, I'm going to abandon being a Christian and just live for money instead. No one has ever said that. And it's very unlikely anyone in this room will ever say, do you know what? Stuff Christianity, I'm going to go and be a Muslim. Okay, or a Hindu or a Sikh. Or just unlikely in this group. Possible? Unlikely. Much more likely, and that's why Paul warns us about it, is that we accidentally walk into the trap of giving our life, our energy, our hearts, ultimately, to acquiring wealth. Again, the answer is keeping eternity in mind. Why give everything up? Why lose paradise? Why enter hell for the sake of some short-term blessings? John, what do you think of someone okay, who got on the bus to go into Leeds City Centre, maybe 10 minutes journey, okay, and they got on the bus and they sat down and they said, look, I'd quite like to make this seat a bit nicer. Can I have a TV installed? I'll pay for it. I want a TV installed in the, in the seat in front so I can watch TV on the journey to town. And actually, I'd like one of those kind of reclining seats that leans back, like at the cinema, the comfy seat. So I'd like to buy a new chair. Uh, I, I'd like some drinks and some food supplied, a little drinks holder. Actually, I'd like to plate the whole chair with gold. And all for that 10-minute bus journey. What do you think if someone spent all that money on a bus journey? They're stupid, wouldn't you? Because it only lasts 10 minutes. Why spend all that money on something that lasts 10 minutes? Well, that's Paul's argument here. Uh, ultimately, your life lasts 10 minutes. You, everyone in this room will live forever, either in heaven or hell. Everyone is eternal. You might, if you're lucky, get 70 years on earth, 80 years, 90. You're not going to get 120. But there are 10,000 times, 10,000 times, 10,000 years ahead of you. So invest your money in what lasts. Ultimately, Christ has won much more for you than money can ever deliver. Christ has paid the penalty for our sins. He's opened up paradise where we will never need comfort because we'll be in perfect comfort. We'll never need security because we'll be perfectly secure. We'll never long for power because we won't need to exercise power over the people. Christ has won every blessing for us. So if you have him, you have everything. You lack nothing. As Paul says in the beginning of Ephesians, he has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. Do you need to repent of craving 
Can you see in your life ways that the desire is just beginning to want to, to take over? Would you, if the government came round, as you said at the beginning, would you be convicted? Would you be caught for being a Christian? If they look at your spending patterns, if they looked at your lifestyle compared to someone who wasn't a Christian. That's why the, the prayer at the end of Proverbs uh, 30 is so helpful. And I'm going to close with it. Proverbs 30 verse 8 says this, praying to God, remove from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. Don't give me poverty, but don't give me riches. How often have you prayed that? No more money, please, Lord. I don't want the pay rise. Please, Lord. Please, Lord, no more money. Not riches. When you see that Christ has delivered everything, your heart is deceitful above all else and craves so politely, so nicely money. Even if you're not a Richard Branson or a multi-billionaire, well, then you can pray this prayer because what you value most is Christ, the gospel, and the eternal life that he's won for you. Let's pray that we stand out as a church in this regard. Let's pray. Our Father God, uh, we confess that we don't know our hearts. Our hearts are deceitful above all things. We cannot fathom them. Uh, we confess that uh, we have immense wealth. Uh, we praise you for the way you've blessed us with every spiritual blessing and also with so much more on top. Our Father, we know compared to most people in the world today, through most people throughout history, uh, we are fantastically rich. Uh, we're sorry for uh, the times that we uh, therefore have been uh, uncontent with what you've given us. We're sorry for the time we've craved more and we pray that by the power of your spirit you would kill off the desire for money that takes us beyond what we need. Father, give us wisdom where we need to make difficult calls about spending. Uh, give us that eternal perspective that invests in what is eternal. Uh, saving souls, the ministry of the gospel, your church. And it doesn't simply fill the rubbish dumps of our cities. And Father, we pray uh, with eager in the Proverbs. Uh, Lord, that you would give us neither poverty nor riches, nor let us become so full, so wealthy, that we take our eyes off you, stop relying on you, and live functionally as if you're not there. But also, Lord, give us enough that we don't uh, be tempted into sin, to steal and grab what has not been given to us in order that we might survive. Father, give us neither poverty nor riches so that we might live wholehearted lives. We ask in Christ's name. Amen.